We're starting a new series today uh, in Not Of. If you've got a Bible with you, we are in John 17 to begin with. This is where we're kind of uh, basing uh, this whole series out of, really, this bit in Jesus' uh, high priestly prayer. Verse 14, he says these, word, these words, I have given them your word. That's us. He's given us his word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. That's quite a strong statement right there. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, or just from evil. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for, the sake, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Jesus prays for his disciples, for us, that we would be in the world, but that we would not be of the world. The very moment you became a Christian, the split second you put your trust in Jesus, it was referenced earlier in our worship, regardless of whether you know this, knew this to be true at the time or have worked it out yet or not, the moment you became a Christian, you were changed. And part of the changing, having brought you out of darkness into the light, part of the changing is that you were added to a people. Flick over to 1 Peter chapter 2. Again, this has been referenced already today. Verse 9, very familiar words. But you are a chosen race, talking to the church, talking to us, the people of God, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We have been added, the moment you became a Christian, you've been added to a people, and that people has a purpose. Verse nine here, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We were saved for a purpose. We were set apart, we were pulled out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light for a purpose. You were added to a family to bring glory to God and to play your part in the family business, which is making disciples. That's what we're part of. That's, we were saved for purpose, to bring glory to God and to play our part in the extension of his kingdom, the building of his church, adding more people into the family, making disciples. We have been rescued from the darkness and we've been given the light, not merely so that we can flee the darkness, but so that we can have our steps guided as we go back into the darkness in order to see more people rescued out of it. That's the job. That's the call, that's, that's what, whether you realize it or not, that is what we are part of. And how we live on this rescue mission really matters. Jesus prays in verse 17 of, uh, of John 17, he says, sanctify them. It literally means set them apart for holy service to God. That's literally what that means, set them, you're saved, you've been set apart, not so you can have your own little party, but for holy service to God. 
Peter says it like this, the, few verse, uh, the next verse on in the 1 Peter chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. How we live this life as believers, as Christians, as part of this royal nation, as part of this holy priesthood, as part of this family, matters. I just want to, just kicking off this series today, and I just want to, I'm kind of setting it all up uh, this week, and then we're going to get into some of the particulars over the next few weeks, but how we live matters. I just want to say up front three really important things. First is this, that his, his, Christians historically have not done very well with this. We've kind of, our relationship, if you like, with secular culture, with the world, the kind of out there, as it were, is often kind of being characterized by one of three sort of things. Firstly, Christians, some Christians kind of stay in a Christian bubble. Just, oh, the world is kind of, occasionally look out into the world and go, oh, this is horrible, this is terrible, I'm going to retreat to my safety zone, I'm just going to hang out with people who are just like me, I'm going to just stay in Christian circles and a little holy huddle, that's what church is for, it's my little enclave, my little protection away from the nasty world in which we live and I'm going to stay in this kind of Christian bubble. Occasionally we venture out, we then look and we shake our heads with disbelief and then we kind of enter back in again into our faith zones and go, oh, no. Second way Christians have often engage with culture, is to fight it. That never goes well, because we end up lashing out in judgment. End up trying to say, oh, we get all shouty. Yeah, we all know Christians like this. Get all shouty and, and end up trying to moralize people. You must behave like this. This is outrageous. What are you doing? This is so wrong. And kind of shout at culture, and then we wonder why Christians get so badly represented in the media or in TV shows because we're the shouty, judgmental ones who moralize everybody else. Third response that Christians often sadly have is we end up just looking like culture, looking like the world. Often starts with well-intentioned, good intentions of trying to engage with people or it's a reaction to judgmentalism, like we don't want to be like that, no, we want to love people, and, uh, but end up what is just looking like everybody else. Sometimes it's a desire to conform because, well, it's easier if you look the same as everybody else, right? It makes work easier, it makes school easier, it makes fitting in easier if you just kind of look, act, and sound like everybody else, but you just keep your Christian thing to a Sunday, and that's fine. Church meetings, keep your Christian thing to a Sunday. The rest of the week, I just end up looking like everybody else, and we don't end up living like Peter describes here in 1 Peter 2. Instead, we just look and act and think and do everything the same as everybody else in the world. So the, first of the, of the kind of introduction to this, first thing I want to say is that historically we've not done very well on this matter of being in the world but not of the world, of reaching the world and demonstrating something different and living for his glory. We've not always done very well. I'm not saying everybody fits in those categories, but historically Christians as a whole have kind of slid into one of those three things. Second thing, by, again, just by way of setting all of this thing up, is that we've got to understand that people are not the enemy. People are not the enemy. The Bible tells us our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers. 
which means people who are not believers, who are not Christians, are not the enemy. Our fight's not against them. We have an enemy. He is the enemy. We don't need to make up other ones. Our fight is against him and him alone. We're called to love God and we're called to love people. And we've got to recognize that part of being in this family now, part of being in this royal priesthood, this holy nation, is that we are now partners with God in his plan for the renewal of all things. And so we need to see people, all people, whatever they might look like on the outside, we need to see people, all people, for what they are. People made in the image of God. People who are loved by God. People who have worth and value because they are made in the image of God. But despite the fact they have worth and value and have people to be loved, they are people who ultimately are trapped in darkness. Like you once were before God broke in and rescued you and pulled you out. We don't judge. We don't condemn It's not us versus them. It's not, hey, we're the good people and they're the baddies and we just invite a few of them in and be nice to them and hopefully they'll become part of the good team. No, 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 no. Part of the point of this series is not to go, the world is wrong and we are totally right. Part of the point of this series is we want to deal with the plank in our own eyes before we start looking at the speck in others. People are not the enemy. Third thing we've got to understand is this. In the world, but not of the world, will result in us looking and living very differently from people who are in the world, or it should. And at times there will be a clash. Let's just be clear. You've heard me say this before. There are only two influences on our lives. There's only two influences on our lives. There's the word of God and the world in which we live. And if you're not actively being shaped by one, if you're not actively being shaped by the word, you will actively, whether you realize it or not, be shaped by the world. We are bombarded every single moment of every single day with messages that are contrary to the word of God, that are contrary to the gospel. They're not neutral. They are contrary to the word of God. And it's not because people are bad. It's because our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers. And there is a kingdom of darkness led by the prince of the air who is trying everything he can every single day to bombard you with messages that are contrary to the gospel. And so this series really is just an opportunity to pause and think. What does it mean to be in the world but not of it? What does it mean to live here and live a life that is glorifying to God whilst trying to reach people who do not know him? How does being in the world but not of the world affect how I live? How does it affect how I think? How does it affect what I do and what I don't do? How I follow God in a culture that really doesn't. And we're going to get really quite practical over the next few weeks. But I just want to pause at this moment and say, we need to stop and think. We need to stop and think. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but the Bible uses all sorts of um, what we would technically call literary devices to get our attention. The Bible's actually really quite funny. I mean, it's written a few thousand years ago, and so humor has changed, so we might miss it in some ways. But it uses humor, and it uses satire, and it uses irony, and it uses exaggeration, and it even uses ridicule, actually, to get us to think about the way we are living and think, wow, that's, what am I doing? 
And the prophet Isaiah, who wrote a massive part of the Old Testament, he was a real expert at it. If you read through like chapters 40 through chapter 55 of Isaiah, you see this moment where he just uses satire incredibly well. From chapter 40 onwards, he just paints this incredible, big, glorious picture of who God is. And again and again, he's like, who compares? God is glorious. God is magnificent. God is incredible. He is so much better than anything else. And Isaiah kind of compares this wonderful, glorious, big God to false idols. And he says, hey, there's there's just no comparison. And he kind of repeatedly makes the point. He says, how could the people of God... Don't forget, that's who it was written to. How could the people of God ever be tempted to follow any other gods when there is no other? What a ridiculous scenario. There's this incredible God. How can you, the people of God, ever be tempted to follow anything else? He says, everything else is just a dumb idol. And then Isaiah 44, he just kind of steps it up completely and ridicules people who follow false gods. Now remember... He's talking to the people of God. He just ridicules people for using false gods. He says, there's people who take a block of wood. Before you read that bit, he says, there's people who take a block of wood, just think this through for a moment, and they use half of it as it's supposed to be used as fire for their evening meal. Right? This is a block of wood. Cut it in half. That bit will cook our dinner on it. And then the other half, bear in mind it's just a block of wood, the other half, he says, they make a god out of it and then they worship it. And he kind of sets it up and goes, you're using it for what it's supposed to be used, you realize it's just something to burn, and then you use the other half to start worshiping it. And then he says this in verse 18, they know nothing, they understand nothing, their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see. And their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. That's what I did with half of it. Shall I then make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? And his kind of point is here he's making is, no one stops to think. Because we can look at that as we do, as it slowly dawns on us what's going on in this scenario. We look at that illustration and we think, well, of course you can't make a God out of a block of woods. Like, why on earth would you live like that when there is the living God? There is this glorious God. Why on earth would you take a piece of wood knowing full well what it's for and use half of it? Well done, you did that what you're supposed to do. And then the other half, what are you doing? It's a piece of wood. Don't make a dumb idol out of it. Why would you worship that? And we all go, yeah, fools. Truth is, in our culture, our idols just look a little bit different, don't they? We don't make idols out of blocks of wood anymore. We make them out of a whole bunch of other things. We need to stop and think. See, everyone worships. You might not be a Christian here today looking in thinking, well, I I saw that you guys just worshipped a moment ago, but I don't. No, no, no. Worship's not something we do on a Sunday. Worship is what we give worth to. It's what the original translation of worship is, worth-ship. It's what we give worth to. It's what we give our heart to. It's what we pursue. It's how we live. 
Now, most of us are not consciously following dumb idols. We're not consciously, intentionally doing that. Most of us, if we're honest, we're just getting on with our lives. We've got work, and we've got this, and we've got family pressure, and we've got this issue, and we've got that issue, and we've got all this stuff going on. And in the midst of it all, we're just scrolling through Facebook, and we're just kind of watching TV or Netflix, and there's nothing wrong with those things, of course not. But we do need to stop and think. Where are we being influenced from? Where are we taking our cue from? Why do I think and act like I do? Is there anything explicitly Christian about how I live my life Monday through Saturday? Apart from turning up to church, is there anything explicitly Christian about the way I think, the way I act, and what I do? Or do I just act like everybody else, I just use less swear words? Or I'm just a little bit more careful about what I post on social media? And I use the Christian version of bragging which says, hashtag blessed. You see, stopping and thinking is the only way to, to pause long enough to consider our lives is the only way to stop giving our hearts to idols. 1 John 5.21, John writes, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Just a little phrase, keep yourself from idols. Pausing and thinking is the only, like, what am I doing? Why do I live like this? Why do I make decisions I do? It's the only way to keep us from giving ourselves to idols. It's the only way to live as lights that shine in a dark and crooked generation. So how do we live in, not of? I just want to very quickly, and then we're going to take communion together. Six things. One of them's really long. The other five we might have time for. Six things that I think are really important and I think will help us and that are going to undergird, if you like, or provide the foundation or the lens through which we view everything else we're going to talk about over these next few weeks in this series. First is this. This is massive and it's so important. We need to understand the power of story and live in the story that God tells rather than the one that culture tells. Stories are important. In these next few moments, I'm most likely going to upset and offend at least a handful of people here. And I do this not intentionally, but just to point out the power of story, how it shapes the way we think. Because stories change the way we view the world. Just think about how the world works for a moment. No one, and this is a sweeping generalization I accept, not intentionally trying to upset anybody, but no one generally cared much about the refugee problem or the refugee crisis in the world until what happened? The story and an image of a dead toddler lying on a beach suddenly changed everybody's version of the story. The power of story suddenly took something which no one really cared about because it was over there and made it real in our lives. No one really cared much about climate change for however many years, because it was scientists showing spreadsheets and statistical projections, and no one cared much. Teenage girl skips school, gets on a boat and sails across the world, and suddenly everybody's talking about it. 
power of story. The power of story. It shapes the way we think. It shapes the way we then act. You see, the story you are living in affects everything about the way you think, about the way you speak, about the way you act, and about the things that you pursue. We need to choose very carefully the lens that we use to view the world because our perspective on what we think is going on changes everything. We see this throughout history. My eldest loves history. Currently obsessed about World War II. <coughs> we loves talking about it and the causes about World War II and I'm happy to talk with him about it. And then we get to the Holocaust moment. And he just said, how did that happen? How on earth did that happen? How did Adolf Hitler manage to convince an entire nation to annihilate 11 million Jews, gypsies, Slavs, homosexuals in the early 1940s? What could have possessed an entire nation to go, well, yeah, good idea? Well, the answer isn't actually that difficult. Hitler told us. Hitler literally said this, My greatest gift to the Germans is that I have taught them to think clearly. He later went on, he said, when national socialism has ruled long enough, it will no longer be possible to conceive of a form of human life, of life different from ours. What did he do? He retold the story. He based it all on the work of Darwin and others on natural selection. And he managed to retell a story in such a way that killing millions of Jews was no longer seen as an evil act, but was actually seen as a good act. It was no longer just like a necessary evil, where they're the problem makers, let's get rid of them. It was now considered to be a virtue, like this is a good thing to do. And people went along with it. You see, by changing the story that people thought they were living in, he convinced people that it was good for the human race. That's the power of story. It transforms actions. It changes the way we think and then the way we act. But let's just be clear. It's not just in history. Make a break here from talking about World War II and Hitler. But it's not, we could look at lots of other illustrations, but it's not just stuff that happened in the past. It's right now. The power of story shapes so much of Western culture and the narrative in 21st century Britain. Last year, 700,000 babies were born and over 200,000 were terminated in the womb. Yet last year in our news and on our TVs, there was more news coverage for the campaign of a former England cricketer to stop illegal rhino poaching than there was about that. Why? Because the prevailing story in the UK is that a baby doesn't have right to life until it's born. If we discovered tomorrow a single-cell anemia on Mars, every news outlet would say life has been found on Mars. Yet in a mother's womb, that's not life. Why? Because of the story that our culture tells. It's the power of story. A few years ago, the idea that you could choose who you are and self-identify as whatever you want 
would not have been understood. And yet now it's celebrated. And yet only in certain ways. A couple of years ago, a former Olympic athlete had a sex change and was applauded for his courage on the front cover of Vanity Fair magazine. Yet in the same month, there was a lady who was fired from her job for working for a black civil rights charity because she claimed to be of African-American heritage when it was revealed that she was actually white Scandinavian. You see, in our culture, it's okay to decide who you are and what you are in certain circumstances, but not in others. That's the power of story. One's an act of bravery, the other is morally wrong. Now, please be very careful to hear what I'm saying here and not what I'm not saying. I'm not passing judgment on how people choose to live their life. I'm just merely highlighting how narrative and story changes how we think and how we act. Because the story that a culture tells means certain things are applauded and certain things are not. Another example for you, how is it that Christians, when it comes to orthodox views on sex and marriage that pretty much everyone culturally believed, and even if they didn't believe it personally, they kind of culturally accepted it, even if they didn't practice it themselves, how is it when it comes to that, Christians holding an orthodox historical view that most of his, people have held throughout most of history, and in fact most of the world still today hold, how is it that we have moved to the fact that we're no, it's not just that we're considered outdated and old-fashioned, but are now actively portrayed as the bad guys, as bigots and far worse, who are attempting to stop true love from being acted out? It's the power of story. Here's a question for you today, if you're a believer. Which story are you living in? Are you living in the story the world tells? or the true story that God speaks. See, if we're going to be in the world but not of the world, we need to be wise enough to see through the story that the world tells. And at the same time, we need to be familiar enough with the real story of God that we don't just kind of know it to be true vaguely, loosely, or true on a Sunday, or true when I'm in Christian circles, or true when I'm around others and say the right thing, but that we actually live it day by day. And we need to know this, that when we do, we will clash with the world. But that's okay. In this world you will have tribulation, Jesus said. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. We need wisdom on how to live. And we need to be very careful about how we speak, particularly on social media and in public settings, but at the same time, we've got to understand that we are exiles. We are sojourners. We are passing through. See, right back in Genesis 12, when God says to Abraham, I will bless you and make of you a great nation. That's the, whole, that's the royal nation that we're now part of. Right back when he said it, he says, you will be my people and I will be your God. And he said, I will be faithful to you and I will multiply you and I will bless you. 
Now, what we've got to understand is that part of that calling is that we are blessed in order to be a blessing to other people. We're not blessed just to keep it to ourselves. We're blessed to give away. And understanding this is so crucial that the reason that we're able to give away all of the stuff is because we don't belong to this world and so we're not living for and chasing the things of this world. And so everything we get, thank you Lord, but we're able to give away. And that might mean literally, it might mean financially, but it certainly does with our attitude and our love towards, we've been blessed in order to be a blessing and because we're not living for this world, we're not chasing the things of this world, it frees us to give away. Abraham understood that. Genesis 23, he said, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. It's literally what Peter picks up in the bit we looked at a moment ago. We're sojourners and exiles. We're traveling through. Philippians 3, this is what Paul says in verse 20. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. Our story is that we're not living for the things and the acclaim and the fame of this world. Our destiny is the new heavens and the new earth with God where there will be no more sins, tears, sickness, sorrow, but only eternal rejoicing and, and joy. That's the end of our story. That's the one we are living for and we need to be shaped by that. See, with an eternal perspective, brothers and sisters, this is not some tub-thumping moment, but with an eternal perspective, we are on the right side of history. We've got to live that and know that. You see, to live in God's story, we need to be proactively shaped, not by the world, but by the word. And at its basic, most basic level, that just means that the Bible and the Bible alone is our authority for how we do life. That doesn't just mean thinking about the Bible or saying my future's secure, one day I'll be with Jesus, it's fine, it doesn't change how I live here right now. No, 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 it doesn't even mean just knowing some Bible verses. It means thinking through the Bible, i.e. thinking biblically about everything. This is more than just being able to bring a contribution in a meeting. This is more than just knowing a few Bible verses that back up our position or tell us what to do in a situation. It's about learning and living the story that God tells and working out our own story through this lens. And it starts with this. This is, if you're making notes, this is point number two. We need to understand that we are made in the image of God. That's where it starts. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God says, let's make man in our own image, male and female, he made them. We are made in the image of God and we gotta understand what that means. Because we're often, we, we, we hear that, made in the image of God, therefore we've got worth. But what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, it, it means that we're made to look like him, yes. But we're made to act like him as well. And actually, we are made to represent him. And so therefore, everything that we do, every little thing, not just talking about the Christian things, every little thing that we do is an opportunity to act and look and represent him. So who is God? Well, God, just for example, through this one particular lens, God is a creator God. He makes culture. He makes and creates new things and he creates things that are good for our good. And so we as representatives of him who are made to be like him and look like him, we're supposed to do that too. 
So therefore, every relationship, every action, every moment from tomorrow morning onwards, everything is an opportunity for us to create good. We are supposed to shape the world in which we live under God's rule and God's authority. And in his word, he shows us how to. And he shows us in his word, when we live like this, we flourish. This is so important to understand. God is good and what he says is good. And when we live like he says, we flourish. You see, living under God's design, living under God's rules, God's norms, that's the way that we flourish as human beings. And it's how we find our sense of identity and it's how we find the significance that we're all looking for. And yet we know that while everything that God spoke into being was good, there's plenty that we do that's not good. And Genesis 3 shows us why. The stain of sin. Somebody said to me recently, why, why is it we keep, you keep saying that? You keep going back to the fall. You keep going back to... Because I'm trying to help you see that in everything, what happened in the fall, everything got broken. Everything was busted. Everything was thrown out of kilter. Everything was damaged. And the stain of sin caused by our rebellion to God's rules and ways, it breaks everything and it destroys everything. And at the fall, creation is put into reverse and chaos begins to ensue. Bluntly put, we broke culture. God's perfect design for us. We broke it. And now instead of us shaping it, it begins to shape us. And because it's broken, it doesn't look the way that God intended And because of man's rebellion, the God-given meanings built into creation that he put there, they're given new meanings now in culture that we build for ourselves. We're taking our own meaning. So in our culture, we have taken all the good things of God and we've stripped God out of them and said, we don't need you, thank you. We don't need any of that stuff. So we'll have our freedom, thanks, but with no restraint. We'll have love, thank you very much, but we ain't gonna sacrifice anything for it. We want justice, but there's not going to be any ultimate rules by which we actually hold to, so we'll determine what's right and what's wrong. We'll have hope, but it's not going to be based on anything eternal. It's just going to be purely earthbound. And the results are not very pretty, are they? Like, just look around right now. In every realm of the created order, there is brokenness and mess. But God... See, in the gospel, Christians are united to Jesus by faith, which means we're forgiven. Yes, absolutely it does. Thank you, praise you, Jesus. Thank you for the finished work of the cross. But it also, being remade now in Christ, we get our old job back. You understand that? We get our old job back. We were created to partner with God and create and make good. Now, in, we broke everything. Now, in Christ, we get our old job back. We are restored now to our role as rulers over creation. And so we, once again, are all about revealing who God is, relating to him and others, and representing him to a watching world and say, look, if you live like this, you will flourish. That's one of our jobs to live our own individual lives under the rule and authority of God properly and in doing so flourish and show a watching world that this is what it looks like to live under God. Is that to do with circumstances? No. But when pain comes and when hardship comes and when sorrow comes, 
We living under God's rule, recognizing that's part of what it is to live in a fallen world. We live through these circumstances with joy because our hope is not based on our circumstances, it's based on an eternity. We live through difficult moments, we live through pain, we live through grief, and we lift our eyes up and we say, we're not gonna react the way the world does because we're not living for this world, we're living for the next. We are merely passing through. And the world says, how do you do that? Let me introduce you to Jesus, who has remade and renewed and given me freedom, hope, love, joy, peace. I am not living for this world. If I get the things of this world, thank you, Jesus. And if I don't, thank you and praise you, Jesus, because I am living for something more. We now, brothers and sisters, are the manifold wisdom of God on display. We're showing a watching world how to live life under God, and it should change how we live. Real quick, point three. It means we should be shaped by faith in everything we do. We don't see things the way the world sees things. We don't see things the way the world sees things. 2 Corinthians 4.18 tells us we look to things not seen but unseen. For we live by faith. I'm not looking at the world and thinking, oh my goodness, this could be the end. I'm looking at the world and thinking, Jesus rules, Jesus reigns. I will play my part in the renewal of all things. But ultimately, he's coming back on a great white horse. And in that moment, all wrongs will be righted. I don't look with eyes of things I see, I look to the unseen. And living by faith means I get to enjoy the benefit of God's common grace on mankind. Common grace is all his goodness poured out that anybody can enjoy. It's common grace that anybody woke up this morning breathing still. You know, your breathing is determined by the Lord. He can just stop it like that. It's common grace. That even though billions of millions of people in this nation and around the world don't surrender to the Lordship of Christ, they wake up every day and enjoy beautiful creation, enjoy this and enjoy that. Living by faith means I get to enjoy all of those things too. I should be the, as Christians, we should be the happiest people on the planet because we get all the good things of this world, but we're not living for it. And through faith in Christ, we're now reconciled to God. Which yes, it means our sin is forgiven. Praise you, Jesus, thank you. But it also means that Christ's, he took all our sin, but it also means that Christ's blameless record becomes ours and now we're sanctified by the Spirit. So his life is now our life. We're hidden in Christ. He's given us all of that. And do you know what that means? It means I now don't need to tiptoe around trying to avoid evil. I don't need to be fearful. Do you think Jesus was fearful? You think he walked around going, oh, culture, it's all falling apart. What should I do? Let's just stay here in a holy huddle. No. He went out and he proclaimed the good news and he enjoyed life and he went to parties and he had dinner with friends and he looked at tax collectors up in trees and said, what are you doing? That's ridiculous. Stop behaving like that. Come down here. And he was fun to be around because wherever he went, there was crowds of people. Are you fun to be around? Like, we, like sometimes we just get so... Choose your words very carefully. <laughs> Holy Spirit is changing me. A few years ago when I was 23 and knew everything, I would have said something then. Now I'm 25, I don't say anything. <laughs> yeah. See, our faith spurs us to good works, it spills out into our relationships, 
into our church, into our communities, and beyond. We're free. We don't need to approach the world with fear, but with joy-filled confidence and eyes of faith. And we don't need to consume the things of the world. We can create and recreate in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Spirit. We live by faith. And we need to believe by faith that the story that God tells is the true and better story and that ultimately it works out in the end. And if it's not yet worked out, it's not yet the end. Slumdog Millionaire, what a great film. Fourth, we need to be shaped by grace. Grace alone reminds us that our acceptance before God is not based on anything we do or don't do, but solely on the finished work of Jesus. We contribute nothing. Nada, zip, zilch, nothing. And this means that the reason that we do something or don't do something needs to be grace-focused. We do because we are. Let me just say that again. We do because we are. Because we're holy, we act holy. Because we're free, we act free. Because we're forgiven, we can forgive others. We need to be very wary of any rationale. This is just a good kind of thinking for the way you live your life. You need to be, we need to be very wary of any rationale for no or not doing something that puts imperatives, e.g., you must be holy, before indicatives, e.g., you are holy in Christ. If someone's on, you must behave like this, you must do this, you must do that. No, 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 no. This is who you are in Christ. You are holy, you are blameless. Now live like it. You must be generous, give. No, 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 look what the generosity of God has done towards you. Look at the amazing grace you've received and now you're free to give it all away because you never owned it in the first place. You see the difference? One puts legalism on you, nasty. We're grace people. That order matters. You see, if I'm saved by grace, then the motive behind what I do or don't do is not to keep the rules, to somehow impress God or prove myself worthy, but to love and honor God because of what he's already done for me. Shaped by grace, it removes any pretense that I'm good and I'm better than other people. I'm not. I'm not better than anybody else in here or out there, but the grace of God has saved me and changed me. It frees me from judging other people because it was never about what I did or didn't do in the first place and it frees me to love people where they're at because I once was there too. Number five was shaped by Christ. We need to be a people who show in all things that he is our salvation and our joy. The world has suppressed this truth and it says you need to, this life is all there is so you need to make the most out of it. No, this life is not all there is. The world says you need to have this, this, this and this in order to know joy and peace and security. No, I'm shaped by Jesus. He is my sufficiency in every situation, in every circumstance. I don't need anything else. And number six, it's all for God's glory. Whatever we do, you know, that question, is it okay to, how far is too far? Can we get away with this? What it? It's the wrong question. Does this bring glory to God, yes or no? If it brings glory to God, brothers and sisters, it's a good indicator you're probably free to do it. And if it doesn't, it's probably a very good indicator that you shouldn't. That's what it's about. We're gonna address some stuff over the next few weeks and the countercultural strangeness of our message will be that there's always an element of confrontation with the world. There's always going to be a clash. We need the Holy Spirit to help us to resist the temptation to water down the message of the gospel. 
need the Holy Spirit to help us to only ever be satisfied in the fullness of God. We need the Holy Spirit to help us in order that we might live lives, wise lives, shaped by faith, not by fear. And we need the Holy Spirit to remind us again and again of the finished work of Jesus. That when it's all said and done, because of the blood of Jesus, I am secure, I am free, I am forgiven. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, because he's alive, I'm alive. Death is not the end. One day I'll be swallowed up in victory and I will enjoy him and his perfect culture for all time in eternity. Until that day, I'm going to work on being in the world but not of the world. Shaped by grace, shaped by the story, shaped by the gospel, shaped by faith, all for the glory of God. Amen?